If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew's Gospel, the 6th chapter. We'll be reading from verses 25 through 34. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles... Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Pray with me. Father, I ask that as we examine this text, especially with the question before us, that you would help us make the connections appropriately in our minds. And that we would model the example of the Lord Jesus towards each other and provide a context in these next few minutes where we're considering one another and allowing one another to receive without distractions. Thank you for the gift of this mighty text. Thank you that through the ages you have preserved the words of our Lord Jesus and his amazing exhortations to us to trust you. Help us live consistent with the confession that this is your world and you are our Father Strengthen us now as we examine these words and seek to apply it to our lives. If you would, where you are, again, pray that the Lord would give you understanding and that we would seek to change in line with what we see from his word.
And if you would also pray for me that I would use words that are clear and helpful and that it would be faithful to the text. Father, we love you and we trust you. We pray that you would do with this time as you will for the sake of your glory and the glory and exaltation of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So the plan this morning is very simple to continue the trend that we've had for now five weeks, including this message of this, what I'm calling Life Together series. The rationale for the series is multifaceted. But one of the main concerns leading to the series is that we live in a culture where individualism and self-sufficiency are more valuable than communal living and interdependency. And I don't mean communal living like in a compound. I mean where your life depends on the lives of other people and you give your life for the good of the lives of other people, as we saw in the example of the Lord Jesus. The American dream drives us away from that. And we need to be a different kind of people. We do things differently in the kingdom. I've used this analogy before, but I think it fits really, really well. The Christian life is not a solo act. It is an orchestra. And if you are not willing to play your part in the music assigned to us, the whole will be lacking. And there will be disunity and dissonance. The plan for this message is to address something that is many, in many ways is a top concern when it comes to building this kind of community. What kind of community, what kind of family are we going to be, in some part, depends on how we answer this most important question. How do we create and preserve marriage? And I'm using that word creating to avoid the whole dating versus courtship debate. Pick whatever term you will. It's all surrounding this idea of how do we get two people who are not married and guide them along through the process as parents and as friends and as godly shepherds towards creating this thing called marriage. The emphasis then will probably lean more towards creating versus preserving, but the applications are all the same. This text, the text we just read, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, does not address this subject at all, at least explicitly, but it is so, so helpful on this point. The plan then is to exposit the passage straight through as quickly as I can without particular application to our question today until we're done with the exposition. So what is the question? How do we, as individuals and families, part of a church together, help create and preserve marriages in a way that honors the Lord? There's a lot of assumptions at work in that question. It assumes that we actually should help do this. And that is part of our job, but we won't address those questions yet. So why this subject? Why pick this subject? Uh, One of our members actually was the impetus for this message, sending me a list of all the birthdays of the kids in our church. And it doesn't look like it now, unless you do a hard count, but we have 40 children connected to this church in some way between the ages of 10 and 20. So that means we could have, in the next 10 years, even if we don't grow very much, 20 to 40 weddings? It's a big question. That's a lot of dating, 
courting, whatever you want. That's a lot of premarital counseling, and that's a lot of opportunity for things going horribly wrong or really, really well and beautiful. That's what you sign up for, for being a part of a small church. It's all of our business in some ways. Who you marry and how you marry them, for those of you who will be married, that's that's one of the most life-altering decisions you'll ever make. It sets the course of your life, as Tim Keller says. It is the most life-altering, life-course-setting decision or process you will ever go through. And even if you're not married or not close to being married, the way you spend this time in your singleness, the days that you have during this season, will still be massively consequential. 97% of the population will be married. And unless we're a significant statistical outlier, these are things that we need to know and embrace. We have to get this right. There are potentials for so many lines of abuse in the family of God as we seek to shepherd our young people through this process. There's a lot of opportunity for abuse in the family. And so, in line with that, I want to begin with a warning. The warning is to not go beyond what is written. There are curses embedded in the text for anyone who adds to God's words. So even though there might be preferred methods out there and things that you might think are very, very wise from your favorite teacher or preacher, making your preference law and binding the conscience of other people and treating it as scripture and as authoritative when it comes to dating, courtship, whatever you want to call it, is very dangerous. And it leads to the abuses that I alluded to. So be careful. This is partly why we're selecting a text like this, because the Bible doesn't line out a step-by-step plan, contrary to what your favorite theologian or preacher might say. So let's begin with the exposition. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. As I go through this exposition, I want you to have the question in your mind, how do we, as individuals and families, part of a church together, help create and preserve marriages in a way that honors the Lord? So as we go through this, we won't be answering the question until the end. As I go through it, think about that. The first thing that the Lord Jesus tells us in this section is to reject anxiety. Reject anxiety. I know that even saying it in that way may seem to many of you as an impossible task to simply reject anxiety. And I want to be clear in saying that having feelings of anxiety is not sinful. We are not as in control of our emotions as we think we are. And the Bible is much concerned about what we do and why we do it than how we necessarily feel at any given time. But, nonetheless, the text is clearly summoning us to reject anxiety. Maybe a way to say it would be this. Don't give yourself over to being concerned about these things. There is that shift in the heart where you can be thinking about stuff and maybe questioning, well, I don't know how this is going to work out or how this is going to happen, but then there is a decision, a choice, a posture where you let yourself be given over to worrying about those things. We need to embrace the fact that we have the dignity 
as people made in the image of God, that we are not totally subject to our circumstances or our emotions. You have a soul. You have a body, and it is afflicted in many ways. You have a brain that is the interfacing between spirit and, and body. But you have dignity, and you make choices. You can decide in many profound ways not to let your heart fixate on these things. You can obey the Lord Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Your anxiety is not a part of you. It does not happen to you. It is a response of your heart to the brokenness of sin and the curse in the world and in you. How do we do that? How do we reject anxiety? He says, therefore... Therefore, I wanted to read verses 19 through 24 just for the sake of time. We won't read that on your own. The context is you can't serve two masters. These sections should actually belong together. There shouldn't be a a heading dividing them in your Bibles. Who your master is determines how you will feel. He exhorts us in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or possessions, some translations say. Who your master is will determine how you feel. What you're concerned about, what you worry about, what you think a lot about, what you give yourself over to be really intent on, really is a derivative question of who is your master. We must reject anxiety, reject anxiety then because the Lord is our master. If you haven't settled that question in your hearts, you're fighting a losing battle against anxiety. Most of us, our interests are divided and it can become a day-to-day proposition as to who our master really is. We will still have concerns. We will still seek things. And we might even say we ought to make ourselves anxious for the things of the Lord. That's the way Paul speaks in in 1 Corinthians. But when we do that, when He, the Lord, is really, really our Master, and we make ourselves anxious to please Him, instead of being anxious about all these other things, then we will find that we are not so anxious. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. When the Lord Jesus says, life, food, drink, and clothing, what you will eat, what you will drink, or your body, what you put on, He's talking about anything. This is what us theology nerds call a mirism. Uh, you find this in the Shema. From, uh, speak of them when you uh, rise up and when you lie down. The implication is, and everything in between. Right? From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. And everything in between. Right? That, that's what this linguistic structure means. So when Jesus is saying, life, food, drink, clothing, He's not just prohibiting anxiety about those four categories. He's saying, if you're not supposed to worry about even these most basic necessities, you're not supposed to worry about anything else. 
That's one of the major points to apply this to our subject today. I hope you can begin connecting the dots. If we're not supposed to worry about life, food, drink, and clothing, then you can apply this teaching to the concept of dating courtship marriage. That's the point. That's the connection, but we'll get to that in a bit. We are not supposed to give ourselves over to concern about anything. Why should we reject anxiety? The Lord Jesus now gives us four four additional reasons to reject anxiety. He has two rhetorical proofs and two theological proofs. And he splits them up in pairs. Rhetorical proof one, theological proof one, rhetorical proof two, theological proof two. So the first rhetorical proof is this. He summons us to consider the essence of life. Verse 25, the second half, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Notice the play on words. Your life is more than worrying about your life. Don't worry about your life because your life is more than these other things. It signals that there's something about our life that's more than just our physical bodies and the years that we have on this earth. And we know what the answer is, but notice that even though the Scriptures never diminish the goodness of the physical world, yet the non-physical aspects of human life, our spiritual purpose, is yet more fundamental and lasting than the physical. Your life is more than this life, we might say. We are made in the image of God, and so it is not befitting that such a being should be overly concerned or fretting about these things. And again, it's not a problem with matter itself. The creation is good, and we will see that more in a minute. It's that you, as a son or daughter of God, ought to be concerned about different things. If you found out, if you grew up as an orphan, you were adopted by this rich entrepreneur by the name of Bruce Wayne, and you find out at some point later on that this guy, Bruce Wayne, is actually Batman, and you figure out that he has adopted you because he wants to give you as an inheritance all of Wayne Enterprises and the cowl and cape, but you want to be a YouTube content creator, and so you reject all that, all of the privilege that you've been given and granted for something else, something that's so much less, so much less important. That's what it's like being a son or daughter of God, being made in the image of God, and choosing to worry about the things that we tend to worry about, that the Gentiles seek. Your path, your destiny, is something different. It's not fitting for you to worry about it. Maybe you could put the emphasis there for reading. Your life, your life is more than food and drink and clothing and whatever else. So that's the first rhetorical proof. Do we really believe it? Do your emotions show that you understand that you're a son or daughter of God with an eternal inheritance? You know and I know how exhausting it is to worry about these things. 
And part of the reason why is that we have so much better things, bigger things, more eternal things to worry about. And then we come to the theological proof. Theological proof number one, God is kind. God is kind. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? It underscores, Jesus saying this underscores God's kind provision for his statement. The flavor has this tone to it. Look, he even takes care of the little birds. Why are you, his child, fretting yourself about the same things? And just as a point of clarity, we're not talking theologically about quietism or pacifism. The birds still go out and get food. If you've ever watched birds closely. But they don't worry either. God is kind, and He is more kind to you than He is to little birds. That's the point. I think some of us have a lot of deep fundamental problems because we believe that God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, sovereign, all the big words we would say, but we struggle to believe that He's kind to us. We struggle to see Him as a kind Father. Your life has been hard and you've gotten the short end of the stick over and over and over. But if we knew, if we knew just how kind God is and how much evil He has spared you from and how much payoff there will be for you for every ounce of your suffering, dear brothers and sisters, how much He is using it to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If we could see with clarity the intensity and the unflinching nature of His will to show unending kindness to you in Christ, we would blush with embarrassment. So we don't need to be anxious because God is kind. Rhetorical proof number one, verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I love this second rhetorical argument. The answer is obvious. You can't. You don't accomplish anything by being anxious. So many theological implications here, one of them being that he determines our days. They're all written down in his book when as yet there are none of them. We won't get into that here. But there's just a very basic and easy point here that Jesus is making. Anxiety or giving yourself over to worry about these things? Seeking them in the ways that the Gentiles do? It does no good. It doesn't help anything. In fact, all decent medical science will tell you now that you actually shorten your life through anxiety. And you might, in striving to get the next thing and that thing, decrease the quality of life in your chase. There's something so fundamental and right below the surface here for us to understand. You're not good at it. We, we are not suited to worry about these things because we're not good at it. Charlie Brown in the special, A Charlie Brown Christmas, opines and frustrations, everything I touch gets ruined. And he's not wrong. That's a deeply theological statement for us, brothers and sisters, when it comes to this life, this 
life for us. When our worry-wart hands get a hold of something, and we, in worry, try to control it, we show two things at least. Number one, we show that no matter how much we might try to dress up that thing to make it more appealing and more acceptable, our, our anxiety exposes that we've actually turned that good thing into an idol. And second, we show that we're destined to ruin it. You're not good at it. Stop worrying about it. Theological proof number two, verses 28 through 30. I won't read them through again, just for the sake of time. But this is not Jesus repeating himself. He's already given us the example of the little birds. Consider the birds, consider the lilies. Some people see this as essentially making the same point. I think he's making a different point, and that is God is attentive. This is the second theological proof. God's attentiveness. The Lord Jesus spends the longest time on this one, more than any other argument. He's not only kind in His provision for you, but He is attentive and very detail-oriented. He Himself clothes the grass of the field. And He says, Jesus Himself says, that lily is more beautiful than Solomon." Consider, this is an aside, it has so many implications for our idea of fashion, what is pleasant, but just consider God's concept of beauty and how that is so different than ours and the things we pursue. He causes the grass to grow, the psalmist tells us. Do you know how detail-oriented your Heavenly Father is? When Peter Jackson was filming The Lord of the Rings, he hired a workshop by the name of Weta. And one of the things that sets The Lord of the Rings trilogy apart from almost any other cinematic work is that typically what happens is they focus on the the actor in the foreground, and then everybody else is kind of wearing plastic or, or something that looks good when it's out of focus. Weta workshops set the whole project apart because every actor, every extra was wearing real armor, real swords, down to the very little nooses that tied the whole thing together. Everything was real. Every link. All the chain mail. God clothes the grass of the field that is alive today and taken away tomorrow. He is so attentive and detail-oriented. He's down there in His omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. He is clothing the grass of the field. It's not the clockmaker God just waiting for these things to develop on their own. He is taking an active role by the Word of His power to make sure it happens just as He designed it in every single case. Why do you need to worry? Notice then the relationship between faith and anxiety. He says, oh, you have little faith. Anxiety thrives in the absence of materialized, sturdy faith in a kind and attentive God. Say that again. Anxiety thrives in the absence of materialized or sturdy faith in a kind and attentive God. I don't say that in a cavalier, preacher kind of way because it sounds good. 
I say that it's rooted in the text, but also mainly, maybe, because I see it as absolutely true in my own heart. When I doubt God's kindness and attentiveness, there's anxiety waiting for me. And so Jesus gives us the first summary. Don't worry about your needs. Trust the Father with them. A few things about this statement, verses 31 through 32. I'll read them very quickly here. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Notice that he switches, Jesus switches from saying, uh, being anxious to seek. It, It gives us a broader understanding of what he means by don't be worried about them. He doesn't say the Gentiles are worried or anxious about them. He just says that they're seeking them. They're making their lives about the procurement of these things. So how they feel isn't really the main point. It's that they're making their lives about them. The Gentiles seek after these things. Being anxious for them and asking this sort of question. Wanting them. Chasing them. That's what it means to seek them. How are we going to get it? How are we going to go from day to day? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Asking those kinds of questions. That's what it means to seek. What are you actually chasing? What is your quest, your life quest, really about? Many of us are just stuck in the repetition of the daily quest and grind. And it's about nothing more. Secondly, notice about these two verses that being forward-looking towards unanswerable questions, what shall we eat? Right? It's, it kind of has a future posture to it, does it not? That we're, we're looking into the future. We, we maybe have what we need now, but, but we're looking into the future. We'll see this more in a little bit. And, and worrying about eventualities and hypotheticals. That type of worry, that type of question, is a characteristic of faithlessness. Notice that the Gentiles are scurrying around seeking these things but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It's a characteristic of a faith relationship with the Lord that we don't worry about these things. It's not that the things that don't matter in and of themselves, this is the third point under this heading, it is not that these things don't matter. They do matter. If God so cares about clothing the grass, God Himself The omnipotent ruler of the universe is out there clothing the grass. So for sure, your food and drink and clothing matter to Him. That's Jesus' point. They matter to Him. And He knows that you actually do need them. And so, after the summary, we see the proper place of seeking. The problem is not that we are seeking for something, or even the the problem is not even that we're very, very concerned about something. The solution is just not to walk around thinking about theological truths all the time. The solution is not just to have inner peace or remaining in some type of situational peace like a hermit. The solution is not to embrace a quiet and still posture of life all the time. The answer is to seek something that you're actually supposed to be seeking. To go and get after it. It is not let go and let God. That is not the teaching of this text. It is rather to enter His service with diligence and zeal and with all effort and striving and concern. He says, verse 33, 
But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seeking the kingdom is something we could spend a lot of time talking about. Those of you who have been here for a while know that I've mentioned it a lot, but I, I'm only going to give a few minutes to it here. Number one, I'll, g- I'll give you three things just for now. It, number one, it's a command. He says, seek it first. That gives a sense of the priority of it in our lives. It doesn't mean the same thing that we find with the tithe of giving your first fruits. Give a percentage first before you do what you want with the rest. He's saying that this is your all-consuming goal. This is your journey. This is your quest. He's commanding no less than that all of your life is to be about the business of seeking the kingdom of God. You're either an ambassador for the Lord Jesus or you're not. And if you're an ambassador for the Lord Jesus, no matter what your chosen career path or, or desired hobbies or desired vacation destination are, your job is to seek the kingdom. It's a must. It's not an option. It's not just for missionaries and pastors and ministers. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, are commanded by commission from the Lord Jesus to seek first the kingdom of God. The way we are told or taught and the way that I think even without saying anything we teach our children is that, well, first get everything else settled that the Gentiles seek and then you'll have the flexibility to seek the kingdom of God. That's a trap. Number three, uh, number two, rather, under this heading, it is a privilege. It's not just a command, it's a privilege. Many people, especially young people, talk about the desire to have their life count for something. To build towards something. To leave a lasting impact, we say. Consider this. Hebrews 12 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer up to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You get to seek and in some sense build that unshakable kingdom. He's not just summoning you to a life that's, that's no fun and all about Jesus. And man, where, where are we going to get the, the free time out of that? He's saying this, this is the only thing that's going to count. Where else are you going to find some purpose for your life that has unshakable, eternal significance? You're invited in. Number three, it's possible. We've seen the futility of worry. How, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Answer, you can't. So all our worrying about all these different things really doesn't do anything. We're not good at it. But yet, we are suited, we are created, we are given the gifts to actually seek the kingdom of God. And when we do it and we seek it first, it actually happens. Because you're something more than a worry wart. You're something more than a Gentile. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things and He has uniquely suited you by His summons to you and His gift of His Spirit to actually get after it and seek the kingdom. And He says, seek His righteousness as well. This is not a second thing to seek in addition to the kingdom. It is more of a point of clarity as to what this kingdom really is. We need to know what it means to seek the kingdom, but a lot of us think that it's a list of actions, projects, 
or plans, maybe. There's a way to substitute doing good things for seeking the kingdom. Paul says this in Romans 14.7, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Seeking the kingdom of God is very much more about those foundational postures of the soul versus any project or plan or short-term mission trip you want to go on. So, to begin this journey, this quest of seeking the kingdom of God, here's just one way to start. And, and I know that I'm distilling a ton in saying this. I think it's probably a better way to begin seeking the kingdom of God right now, no matter how old you are, than most of the books out there that you can read on the subject. Because the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, then pick just one fruit of the Spirit in that list are one of the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and commit yourself to become an expert on it. Not just in knowledge, but in practice. And I guarantee you, in that quest to become an expert in knowledge and in practice of that one single attribute, you will be seeking the kingdom in more ways than a lot of pastors and preachers and church planters out there. We're to seek His righteousness even though we already have it through faith in Jesus. This means that we seek that which we are and will be. Begin being the thing that you know that God is making you to be. Seeking the kingdom is less about building things and getting stuff done and more about seeking the Lord Jesus Himself. The example of Mary and Martha is perfect here. Poor Martha. She's going to be used as examples and sermon illustrations until the Lord Jesus returns. Does your seeking the kingdom and what you think that means look more like what Martha was doing or what Mary was doing? So much more I could say. We have to move on. And so we come to the third part of verse 33. Verse 33c. And all these things will be added to you. There's no way around the logic of what Jesus is saying. You make your life about seeking His kingdom and He'll take care of the rest. That's not idealistic. That is basic grammatical exegesis. And there is an attitude out there. Maybe you have it now. Maybe you're thinking this right now. You can say that up from the pulpit, preacher man. But it doesn't really work now, does it? It's a pretty idea. We know in the muck and mire of the day today, it doesn't really work. Here's the point. The things that you will find yourself doing as you seek the kingdom of God in the ways I've described will find yourself doing all the things where God will take care of your needs. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Here's something I want to say. There's actually no such thing as a life-changing sermon. You can be really moved emotionally. You can be really, really, oh, that was great. I, I felt this way. I thought these things. But you've got to go and do something with it. Here's the point and the belief. With a statement like this, and all these things will be added to you, God takes care of His employees. And to live your life fixated on anxiety about one thing or another says, essentially, you don't believe God is a good boss. 
There are many objections that could be rendered to this. I'm going to skip over them for the sake of time. Jesus gives us a second summary. Do not worry about the future. Be faithful now. You and I are not good about being concerned about or being anxious about the things that the Gentiles seek. Additionally, this is the point here, we're not experts on the future. Yet the majority of our fears orbit around that question, what if? There's a whole industry that exists around that very question. The whole insurance industry is essentially a a fear-mongering industry that, that asks you the question, what if, what if, what if? And we pay out the nose. You're not good at the future, so stop. So much of the postulating and planning we do and the way we do it is essentially a violation of this command to worry about tomorrow. If we were less concerned about tomorrow or the future, with all undue respect to your favorite talking head or podcast host, Neither you nor I know jack squat about tomorrow. If we were more concerned about faithfulness now and addressing the trouble, the text says trouble, that God has ordained to exist in today, then we would know this promise that God would add to us all the things that He knows that we need they would be added to us. And all the objections you may feel right now to what I'm saying essentially boil down to this idea, yeah, but. Remember, you're not good at it. So stop. Your inheritance is something different. So, that's the exposition of the text. We haven't applied it at all yet to our central question here. You might quibble with that or criticize me for not bringing the question in until this point. But that's the plan. I want to give you two primary applications for creating marriages in light of what we've just seen. The point is, if you try to focus on this idea of creating marriage, dating and courtship, and how to get it right, and you're not 100% sold on the value and priority of seeking the kingdom and actually do it, then it will be a recipe for disaster. There's a lot of talk out there about creating God-honoring relationships, but usually all that means is that we make sure the young man and young woman stay physically pure and that the parents are 100% on board. And if we can do that, we feel like we've checked the box and created a godly marriage. But this fundamental question gets left out. Have these two people really settled it in their hearts that they will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? And if you're asking that question, or if you're ask, or if the couple's asking that question when they're already there and infatuated with each other, you've already lost the plot. If seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness is not your all-consuming goal, even if you may wait till your wedding night, and even if the parents are 100% on board, all you've really done is help two covert idolaters create a new family. This is not a hypothetical problem. This is the case with the vast majority of Christians getting married. 
And part of the problem, if I might be so frank, is that we expect so little of young people. Young people, can you honestly look yourself in the mirror and say, my life is marked by seeking first the kingdom of God? Do what needs to happen so that you can be honest in saying that. Or do we just not believe that the day of the Lord Jesus is going to happen? And we're just living our life and trying to have a good family, a good house, a good American dream, and then maybe it's going to happen. Maybe we'll stand before Jesus and I believe the right things in my mind so that if it happens, then I'll be let into heaven. That's not seeking the kingdom of God. We don't have enough time, guys. You don't, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. That's why you shouldn't worry about tomorrow. So here's the first application for creating marriages. Therefore, do not be anxious about who you will marry or who likes you or who doesn't like you or when you will be married. Rather, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The Father knows that you need them. He's talking about the very same thing in this teaching. To say, your life, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. He's trying to draw a circle around all of your life. And to say, don't be worried about any of it. So that obviously includes this whole process of creating marriages. Remember, this is what the Gentiles seek. It's a huge industry. They seek after all these things. The solution is the same. The Father knows that you need them. I mean, do we believe that or not? What does your heart tell you? Meaning, if you allow anxiety and frustration and being concerned and seeking these things over and over and over, what does that say about whether or not you really believe if God cares for you? Seek first. His kingdom and His righteousness. So how do we do this? In the context of creating marriages, dating, courtship. Do you know, <laughs> this, is, this is somewhat of a side application, but it's taking the essence of the text and applying it directly to this question and entering into a marriage. Do you know how much it will do for your future marriage, if that's what the Lord has for you, for you to eliminate this kind of anxiety? Anxiety is rooted, especially for men, in pride and selfishness. Here's what Scripture says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Men, young men, if you can address pride and selfishness, you will circumvent ruin and destruction for your future marriage. There's nothing that ruins a marriage faster than a proud man. And young ladies... If you can address this issue of allowing yourself, giving yourself over to anxiety, here's what Scripture says. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. You will spare your family from the curse of that if you can address this issue first. 
of seeking first the kingdom of God and doing what we've been gifted, being made in the image of God and being counted as sons and daughters of God through adoption, to focus on that and not let the corruption of sin that presides in anxiety and gets a good rap because, oh, we're, we're thinking about how we can get paid and, and support and etc., etc., and it's just an excuse to be anxious. The point is this. The things that you will find yourself doing if you set it first and foremost in your heart to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, will lead you on a path where you will become, in due time, to the place where God wants you. And that will be better for you to come at it from that indirect path of seeking the kingdom than to seek it directly like the Gentiles do. Think of it this way. If God will take care of His employees, unless He has granted you the so-called gift of singleness, then He will take care of you. If you're really serious about sanctification and becoming more like the Lord Jesus, then you will be about the business of doing things that prepare you for being a good spouse. There is no better course, better crash course, on sanctification and dying to self than entering into a godly marriage. And if you're really serious about seeking the kingdom, then be the kind of person who can enter into one. Here's the second application in creating marriages. One who seeks the kingdom first will generally find others who seek the kingdom of God too. If you make your life about this, seeking first the kingdom, and everything else can be set aside for that all-consuming goal of the kingdom of God, you will find yourself gravitating towards and find yourself surrounded by people who do the same thing. You'll at least know about them. You'll begin to notice who's serious about this and who's not. And your heart will be drawn to them. A romance founded on that kind of foundation is in such a better place than anything else. So ladies, young ladies, take your pick. Successful, well-established, good job, good-looking, tall, dark-haired, and handsome, or a humble, patient, young man whose goal is to please the Lord at any cost. Guys, take your pick. Sweet, pretty, intelligent, laughs at your jokes. Or a humble, patient young woman whose main goal is to please the Lord Jesus at any cost. So how do we do this? We follow the example of the Lord Jesus. As we read in Philippians chapter 2, how did God take care of securing a bride for His Son. Jesus became a servant. And He humbled Himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and, we could read between the lines, given the church to Him as His bride. Maybe that means some of us don't get married. Maybe that means fewer of us get married. 
That's the history of Christianity. I know there are teachers out there that speak of marriage as, as the preferred state or the normal state. That's just not how it's been in the course of human history and church history especially, even though 97% will. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and you find others doing the same thing and you cross their path, then because you have been seeking the kingdom of God first, you will then be in such a better place and with such a head start if or when you decide to pursue each other relationally or romantically. I want to give two applications very quickly to preserving marriages. So let's say you're already married and you might not be very involved in counseling or helping people for marriages, though I think that path is there for all of us, especially with our numbers. But we could apply it the exact same way. Therefore, do not be anxious about the state of your marriage, how your needs are being met or not met, or when things will get better. In a seemingly contradictory kind of way, to focus too much on your marriage will actually ruin it. Because you were made to seek first the kingdom of God. And even if things are really, really good, like the church or missions or even study of theology or your marriage, if you focus on that and seek that thing first, even if you excuse it, well, this is how I'm seeking the kingdom of God, when we're anxious, when it doesn't go the way we want, it exposes it's really an idol. So how do we do that? How do, we make, how do we escape the trap of focusing on even good things and allowing that to take the place of the kingdom of God? The only escape is to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness with no strings attached. It really all comes down to this, brothers and sisters. What do you really want? You want a healthy marriage? Do you even want a God-honoring marriage? And then when you don't get it, Anxiety, fear, frustration, anger. It shows clearly that the kingdom of God isn't what matters most to you. You've prettied it up. When it doesn't go the way you want, then that's when the rubber hits the road. We come face to face with who we really are and how we still need to grow into the likeness of Christ. Maybe by seeking first the kingdom of God, your marriage actually gets worse. What are you going to do then? How do you respond? That shows what you're really seeking. Secondly, for preserving marriages, one who seeks the kingdom of God creates the only context for health. There's a tricky idol out there of healthy pervades and finds its way into almost everything. Why are you doing this particular thing? Why are you trying to work on the health of your marriage or the health of your church or the health of your family or the health of your body? When ultimately we just want things to be better and easier. That's like instead of buying a Christmas tree, buying a Buddha idol and hanging all your Christmas Christian ornaments on it. It's silly and ridiculous because that's exactly what it is. 
taking your idol and just hanging Bible verses on it because you really just want that thing and you're justifying it with Scripture references. A few applications for life together. I'll go through these very quickly. If you're following along on the notes, uh, you'll see that I added a lot of space for you to write these down, but we'll just fly through these really quickly. Quickly. In creating and preserving marriages with the emphasis on the kingdom of God, number one, we should provide a context for kingdom seekers to find each other. Be that place where a young woman who really does seek the kingdom of God and a young man who really does seek the kingdom of God or at least wants to, sees that and wants to have it, can actually find each other. This implies so much work in oversight, encouraging participation, giving guidance when needed, encouraging them towards service and not just fun stuff. You know, I'm a fan of fun. We do games nights. I'm, I'm a fan of all kinds of fun. But if, if we're really serious about seeking the kingdom of God, then we've got to help our young people serve. Also consider this. This is a summons to you older people all of us who are already married, adults, a vision for the kingdom and seeking first the kingdom of God cannot, cannot be taught in propositional statements. It has to be seen. And are you living your life close enough in proximity with young people so that they would be able to see it and imitate it? If you're serious about the Great Commission and making disciples, you will make this a priority. Number two, we need to provide a context where subtle idolatry can be eradicated. How else are you going to know if you're seeking a healthy marriage or a healthy church or a healthy ministry and all all these things that are good and right and true, but ultimately it's idolatry in your heart and you're just dressing it up? You have to be known. As I said when they brought us up to interview here four years ago, there's no substitute for spending time together. You have to open up and be vulnerable. You are not the best judge of whether or not what you're seeking is idolatry or not. Or to, to disagree with that is to say you have no blind spots. Also, number three, I had a, so much to say on this front, but we just have to reject consumerism, pragmatism, and low expectations in the church. Youth ministry itself nowadays and what is acceptable in the evangelical sphere is built on consumerism and pragmatism and low expectations. To paraphrase Paul, this has the appearance of wisdom in promoting church growth and involvement in church activities, but it has no value in making disciples. We can pat ourselves on the back as the evangelical church and pretend things are okay, but by and large... They're gone. We have, as I said, 40 people between the ages of 10 and 20. How many between the ages of 20 and 30? They're gone. And they're not here because we didn't... they're, They're not gone because we didn't have enough fun and games. They're not here because we gave them something other than a grand vision for the kingdom of God when they were here between 10 and 20. We botched it. And we failed to do so because we expected so little. It is true that folly is bound up in the heart of the child, and most teenagers can tend to, have, tend to behave very poorly. But evidence suggests that when Jesus came and selected His disciples, they were 
teenagers. Can I explain that if you want? Come see me afterwards. Sure, they were clueless and needed instruction. But that's the example of Jesus. It is our job as the church to do this together. Never in the Bible is making disciples of our young people seen as the responsibility of just the parents. It takes the church. And maybe you would learn more about how to be effective and gracious in helping your own children become better disciples of the Lord Jesus if you practiced helping disciple their friends. Number four, I want to summon us to faith in God's care and provision very quickly. What if just a handful of us like, say, I don't know, 12 of us, really decided that the kingdom of God must be sought first and foremost, and everything else had to take a distant, very distant, second row seat. I think we would see the world turned upside down again for the Lord Jesus. If you have faith in God's care and provision that He is kind and attentive and that He's a good boss, I think you can live this way. The early church seemed to do it in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. That's what those implications are. And lastly, I want to summon us to trust in God's faithfulness and wisdom. God has a policy normally of knowing that you need them and adding all these things to you. But he has freedom to interrupt his own policy. Consider that for the Apostle Paul, God taking care of his food and clothing and drink meant being in a jail cell tied to a Roman soldier. God was taking care of him. You need to be okay with God's level of provision for you. But remember, the Father knows that you need these things. He's aware of your needs more than you are. And if He chooses not to meet your needs in this life and it ends even very badly for you, I mean, consider the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist. Then you can know and rest in the fact that your reward in heaven will be great as you have sought to humble yourself and seek His kingdom first. In short, just as we saw, we need to be like the Lord Jesus. Will we trust Him? Will we trust our Father with what we want in our lives? Will we trust Him with our love lives? Will we trust Him with our marriages? Will we trust Him with the question of whether or not we will be married and how we'll pursue that? That's what Jesus did. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Could you describe your life as an emptying of yourself? by taking 
the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Do you trust him? Oh, for the grace to both see and imitate the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us see that there is much wisdom in focusing on the basics before we get to more complex questions. And help us see the folly of worrying about this or that, especially when we have not yet settled in our hearts if we will first seek your kingdom. Grant us the grace of the ministry of the Spirit in causing these words to go deep and do that spiritual heart surgery that needs to take place so that we would see the surpassing value and glory of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.